I'm your host, Andy Burdick, joined today by the pitching guru himself, Bob Finkbeiner, and we're also joined by the silky smooth vocals of our super producer, Jason Ruggiero. Bob, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? I am wonderful. Just I'm maintaining this positive attitude. Jason, how's everything down in the Titusville area? Hashtag quarantine life. <laughs> I guess that's going to be the giant elephant in the room that we're going to have to tackle first on our topic of the day, huh? But I'm glad to hear that everybody's everybody's doing well. It's been quite a while since we've all been behind these microphones, so uh, I don't think we'll have some of the, the uh, struggles of our earliest iterations of this podcast, but uh, there will there will definitely be, I'm, I'm sure, some, some bumps in the road we'll have to smooth out tonight as we get back into this uh, habit of recording recording live again but it's good to hear everybody's voices i uh i did miss this for the uh, few years that we've been we've been uh in hiatus i'm sure we're gonna surprise i couldn't find too. a microphone yeah oh yeah oh i was looking around for equipment yeah i sent a message in our text super... earlier it's dusting off everything like ghostbusters and ghostbusters too the old super producer stumbling around the stock room looking for a microphone it was pretty <laughs> pretty pitiful <laughs> looking around for headphones uh, yeah, but yeah, it is. Uh, it's very good to to hear everybody. Glad to hear everybody's doing well, and I hope everybody in our listening audience is doing well. And uh, hopefully, we'll be bringing you some some interesting content in this unique time in civilization's history. I guess we could say what a what a strange time to decide to bring a podcast back about baseball when there's no baseball going on. Yeah, that was that was my wife's comment. What are you guys going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you worry. We'll we'll find something. I said, oh, we'll find something. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what do you say we dive right in, gentlemen, to baseball in the time of COVID? So there's a lot of ground to cover. I think our our plan for this topic of the day section is just to kind of maybe hit some of the, the major points that we're, we're looking at with the future of baseball it it's again it's really kind of odd I, I don't know how you both feel about baseball coming back but it, it's kind of odd to be thinking about baseball coming back to me at all this summer with everything that's going on like it's just every day is just like a barrage of intense news and baseball has always been for me my welcome distraction to everything it's just it's like my happy place it's you know, when I'm grading papers at night or I'm doing graduate work or doing things like that, it's just the noise that's always there for me. And it's been it's been very odd not to have it. But at the same time, it does feel weird to, to crave it so badly when there's just like nothing going right on the entire planet right now. So I don't know, Bob, how are you how are you feeling about baseball just in general coming back this summer? Uh, in very much the same way that you've already outlined, but uh I remain cautiously optimistic in everyday life, but almost in a sense of like realism. I just don't know how in these current times can baseball actually come back. Yeah, that's that's what I'm kind of struggling with too is how how they're going to implement this. So the latest report that we have, and this is per Ken Rosenthal at the Athletic, is that they're Right now, Major League Baseball is trying to look at a shortened season of around 80 games or so that they could start in July, which if you had told me that there would be baseball in July a few weeks ago, I would have said there's absolutely zero chance of that. So they seem pretty optimistic. It sounds like the structure of 
how the schedule is going to work is going to be the biggest change because they're going to only have teams facing other teams in the same geographic divisions and the same division in the opposite league. So AL East and, and NL East will be the only teams that will be competing against each other all season long. It sounds like, again, that teams are looking to play in as many home parks as possible. I know initially there was a lot of talk of trying to keep like spring training complexes in Arizona packed full of all of the teams and just shoving everything in Arizona, which, you know, it was an idea that was thrown out. And I don't think that there's any necessarily bad ideas, but I think very quickly they realized that this was a bad idea because nobody liked that scenario at all. So that's that's just kind of where they're at right now. It's looking like an 80-game season is what they're shooting for. Teams just playing teams in the same geographic region and trying to keep as many people in home parks as they can. Now, I haven't read anything that has sh- talked about what they want to do if, what if a, a city is shut down or, you know, what if, like, a player on your roster gets sick? Like, what do you do then? So I don't know. There's there's going to have to be a lot of stuff that I think Major League Baseball and the MLBPA are going to have to really iron out just logistically with how baseball is going to work before they even start digging into the rabbit hole that is like how salaries are going to work and service time and, you know, what's going to happen with like out revenue for, you know, there's not going to be fans coming into the stadiums, obviously. And so I don't know. I, Jason, what are your what are your thoughts about everything that you've read so far about baseball coming back? Uh, my thoughts are, I question exactly how they're going to figure this out, but I believe they will, and I believe that because of the almighty dollar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because one of the things that we don't often think about because it doesn't matter is that when players don't play games. Players don't get paid, right? Like, they literally get game checks. And when they don't play in games because the season is suspended, they're not getting paid. And, you know, if you're um, Chris Sale, I don't know, David Price, right? Maybe that's okay because you've made some money in your life and you've got some set aside. But, uh, you know, if you're Jeffrey Rodriguez on the Indians, that, that that's a problem, Right. And, um, and, and I think that really is going to be the driving factor, both for the players and for the owners. And I think eventually that's going to what, that's going to be the thing that drives everyone to some kind of agreement. And it's going to be a lot different, whether it's 80 games or 40 games or a round robin tournament, right? We've heard all sorts of crazy ideas, um, and I'm kind of with you, Andy, that I don't know that there's any bad ideas to at least throw out and talk about, uh, as long as you're honest about the uh, logistics that it's going to take to play a baseball season and, and the things that are going to come up, and you better have a plan to deal with them before you get started. I think to me the real ethical dilemma was highlighted by Red Sox pitcher Colin McHugh, who I had I had read some thoughts of his about the the predicament that this kind of situation could put players and coaches and managers and you know probably even to some extent like front office staff you know like think about all of the people involved in in baseball and 
when you really start digging into it, you know that there's a lot of people behind just stadium operations and things like that. And I think the, the ethical thought of what happens if you're not comfortable returning to work, should you be forced to go into like a locker room with, you know, 50 other people and a stadium that needs, you know, dozens of people to keep it running and, and be forced to go to work like that. If you don't want to like a roster spots going to be saved for people. I, and then on top of that, I think there's a whole real, for me, this was the first thought that popped into my head when they were talking about baseball coming back, but they're going to have to be testing these people that are all going to be together because they're not going to be able to main, you know, you're not, you're not going to be able to maintain social distancing on a field or in a clubhouse. And so you're, you're testing all of these people, presumably, and there's not widespread testing available to doctors and nurses and like, you know, grocery store clerks and like people that are actually like doing work, keeping our country running. And to me, it raises an, an ethical question of, is it okay for professional sports to exist and have access to things that just a regular person doing a real job that actually matters doesn't have access to. And I think that will be a very interesting question for major league baseball to answer at some point. And a very, I'm, I'm assuming it'll be a very interesting response to the general public about how they're going to rationalize utilizing those resources and who knows, I mean, maybe in a month or two time, we'll have that kind of testing more widely available. But as of right now, boy, to me, that's a real tough sell. I don't know. Bob, any any thoughts on baseball coming back that we haven't covered yet? No, I agree. That's one of the overriding concerns, I think, sometimes that's sort of um, overlooked. I mean, what if you're Carlos Carrasco and what he's gone through and coming back to the clubhouse and being possibly exposed to potential life-threatening virus with his current health. Carrasco and Terry Francona with, oh boy, what was, what's uh, what's Tito's health complication that he has? They were the first two people that I I can't of. remember. I thought it was his heart, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought yeah, that, he, that could be wrong. He has like some kind of arrhythmia or, or something wrong with his heart, but they were the first two people that I thought of with this. Yeah. You have someone who's like recovering from cancer and Terry Francona who was hospitalized not or, too long ago. Number. Or number of guys that have asthma we're not aware of. Right, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, again, that's before you start talking about, like, well, who are these, like, 70-year-old coaches and managers on the roster that are just old and in the demographic that having contracting this virus would make it very dangerous. Uh, the only other things that I thought were really noteworthy about what baseball could look like when it comes back, uh, Scott Boris was on ESPN's Get Up uh, a few days ago, and he mentioned that, they're going to have to kind of phase in spring training. I've read a few articles that talked about teams reaching out to players and telling them to start kind of ramping up their workouts the best that they can on their own. Because, you know, you have all of these players that by themselves or, you know, not at team facilities or haven't been at team facilities until recently. And, you know, we're at the time of year where like the season usually is rolling at this point and everybody's arms are getting loose and your legs are kind of getting used to getting beat up every day and, they are not anywhere close to that yet. So I had read that teams have been reaching out, telling players like, hey, kind of ramp yourself up and get ready. And that was kind of what Scott Boris had touched on as well, is just making sure that that everybody is kind of getting into that kind of shape that they need to be in. So I, I think that's kind of what baseball is looking like as of this exact second. 
I'm sure that that's subject to change as soon as Major League Baseball and the Players Association actually receive communications between one another. I guess that's the other important thing to point out, too, is Tony Clark has stated to uh, ESPN that everything that's being floated out there, his exact words are, is just rhetoric at this point. They haven't received anything formal. And it sounds like we're looking at like Monday, Tuesday of next week before Major League Baseball actually submits something to the Players Association to look at. So there's still a lot of hurdles, I think, that need to be cleared and a lot of things that are going to need to be hashed out. But it'll be a very interesting thought experiment to see how an organization as big as Major League Baseball tries to get itself running in this interesting time in our humanity's history. Gentlemen, anything else we want to talk about with baseball in time of COVID before we move on? KBO. Yeah, KBO, yeah. I think, yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting, uh, I guess, look at how baseball could kind of springboard into its regular season. Have you guys been watching any games? I watched one. One also, just one. So I watched when baseball started up in Taiwan. I watched a couple of those games. They were broadcast on Twitter. And it was kind of interesting. You know, you got to see a few, each, each team obviously has a few uh, players that are not from from Taiwan that are that are playing on the roster. So you'd see, you know, a couple guys on each roster that you recognized. Um, the baseball is definitely not high quality, or as high, I, I shouldn't say that. It is not to the standard of Major League Baseball that you're used to if you're used to tuning into seeing that. But um, it was interesting to see that at least there were places where they were comfortable putting players together in a situation where they're in clubhouses and on the field and, and getting that thing rolling again. It'll be interesting. It's been a, a nice little distraction to have that back. Having a, I will tell you, watching baseball with having a toddler at home is drastically different. Like pre-child, I would probably be up at 6 a.m. every day watching baseball. And now it's like, oh, I can't. I'm not, not waking up any earlier than I have to because we gotta we got to grind out this day together with the toddler and He's not He's not going to care that I was up early watching baseball. He's not giving me any breaks. Well, I'm at the point where my son asked to watch it. I told him that you know ESPN had gotten an agreement to air it, and he said, well, let's watch it. Oh, so, that's you know, beautiful. He climbed, climbed, up on, climbed up on the couch with me, and we watched a few innings, and uh, it was good to watch it, and he was enjoying it, and you know, it was just nice to hear... It was nice to uh, have it on in the background, right, and hear the crack of the bat, and and it was nice to hear Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez, even though it was quite clear they didn't know what they were going to talk about for the next three hours, but they were going <laughs> to figure it out. Gosh darn it! Yeah, those are seasoned veterans of the booth there, so I have no doubt that they will uh, they'll do a fine job with whatever they're doing. All right, gentlemen. Well, let's move on to some baseball in Cleveland. So. As we've already addressed, it's been a few years since we've had this band together talking about baseball, and I will say that the tenor of what professional baseball in the areas that we are watching has looked like has evolved drastically since 2017, last we spoke. And I think uh, that, and I'm I'm going to defer to Bob and Jason to to talk about this, because if you're not familiar with our podcast format, format, Bob and Jason are the the real Cleveland specialists. They they uh, used to dig into the farm systems. They watch and listen to the the Cleveland games much in the same fashion that I do with Pittsburgh. So so they're going to kind of catch us up on how things have changed or evolved in Cleveland for the last few years and 
we're going to talk a little bit about uh, where they were at and where they are at currently. So, uh, Jason, why don't you kickstart us here? What's uh, What's been going on in Cleveland since we last spoke? Yeah, well, you know, on that note, I went back and listened to the last podcast in my, the last Try to See It in Mind podcast in my feed, and uh, it was called, oh, let, me, let me pull it up here, I should have had it ready, but it was called Edwin Encarnacion's Interesting Attendance Bonus. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I listened to that, and this was recorded in January of 2017. So, so Bob and I, you know, our hearts were new, newly broken uh, by the Cubs, and um, we were we were beginning to heal that fracture because of the the signing of Edwin Encarnacion. I think the first thing I I wrote down when I started this sums it up for Bob and I and most of the Cleveland fans. Since that point, the Indians have done their best, their level best to squander the Francisco Lindor years. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, there's no other way to say it than that. You know, the last time we, we talked, like I said, we were ecstatic. It was 2017. I think the ownership theme was like, let's, let's do this. You know, we came within one win and we've got this young core. And so they've been, pushed to seven games by the Cubs in the World Series, which is strange to even like say it out loud still four years later <laughs> that the Indians were in the seventh game of the World Series in extra innings. Um, and then they went out and signed Edwin Encarnacion. And you listen to that podcast, and you can hear it in all of our voices. of just like, I didn't ever in my life dream that the Indians would sign Edwin Encarnacion except when he was maybe like 38 years old. And uh, that year, they they had a 22-game winning streak, set the Major League Baseball record, which Bob was in attendance at the the uh, 22nd game. Is that right, Bob? That's right. I went to game four of that uh, winning streak. I guess the same Kansas City Royals when the, I think Cleveland scored nine runs in the first inning and coasted a victory. And then I had tickets in my season ticket package for Thursday, September 14th. And by that time, I was like hoping and hoping and hoping I keep on winning, keep on winning, keep on winning. <laughs> and then finally, to my game, and what happens? We're losing two to one, going in the bottom of the ninth before Frankie hits that awesome double, triple off the wall in, in left field. And then Jay Bruce knocks in Jose, bottom of the 10th to get the streak. And win. Yeah, it, it was it was pandemonium. It was it was a playoff atmosphere during a winning streak. So I guess I guess yeah, we, could, we could summarize how we're feeling about Cleveland in 2017 as life is good, right? Oh, they're life coming was off the World good. Series, big winning streak in season. They're spending money, confident, scoring scoring nine runs in the first inning. That's like the '95 Indians, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So we won 102 games that year, cruising, like you said, feeling good. And then we blow a 2-0 lead in the ALDS. Oof. Awful. But I think everyone at that moment, right, is thinking, like, it's okay, because we got Edwin, and we got Lindor, we got Ramirez, we got all these guys. And if I had to put a theme on that offseason, it's like the front office looking at ownership saying, you want us to do what? <laughs> 
Because it was like the Dolans were like, you know, we want to start closing the wallet up a little. So it was like, goodbye, Carlos Santana. Goodbye, Brian Shaw. Goodbye, Austin Jackson, who didn't cost a lot, but sure had a nice season in 2017, right? He did. And what do we get? We're left uh, to ponder a season with Yonder. Yonder Alonso. He comes in to replace Carlos. Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> we get 91 wins. We kind of stumble around, you know, to 91 wins, honestly. That that was my memory of it, right, Bob? is like 91 wins looks good when you look back, but it was never that, like, dominance of the 2017 team. Yeah. It felt like a very flat season, just, like, no momentum at all. Yeah. And we promptly fell flat on our face against the Astros in the ALDS. We get swept. Get of course, that sweep. Yeah, it was decimation, right? Yeah. Of course, that decimation, that sweep looks a little different in hindsight now. <laughs> it's also the Especially, season. Uh, sorry, also the season. Trevor Bowers making accusations against the Astros pitching staff. Yeah, that was when he started well, tripping that... on Twitter. Yes. That's right, and that's part of the reason why it still, you know, lines up with those allegations against the Astros, right? Because even during the ALDS, there were allegations against the Astros. There was talk that the Indians had thrown someone out of a camera bay and, you know, on and on and on and all sorts of different things. So, well, And the thing that's interesting about, and I, I don't want to digress too much on, on Trevor Bauer because... <laughs> I don't know who wants to, but um, the the interesting thing about Trevor Bauer's accusations, while he doesn't always package them in like a way that is uh, easy to accept or um, probably even like like a socially polite way to to present information, he you know he he really was bringing up these points long before people were talking about like trash can banging, and I think that's what people think of with Houston, but the things that Trevor Bauer was talking about was like hey. Have you ever wondered why, you know, pitchers go to Houston and then suddenly they get really, really good again? And, you know, it wasn't like he wasn't talking about, like, cheating by banging on trash cans. He was talking about, like, hey, what are these guys putting on the ball that suddenly now they can go to Houston and increase their spin rates to these insane right. degrees? And and it's it's it was kind of interesting to see Trevor Bauer kind of, like, tug on that little string. And, you know, he didn't unravel, like, a whole uh, deep state conspiracy, but... You know, he's it definitely like the things that he said when you look at them now in context with what we know about Houston, it boy, does it really make you ask some questions about what he did know and and what Houston was actually doing. Yeah, because Bauer, right, like loves to look at spin rate and data. And he's like you said, he's looking at how did this guy go from one team and then go back to Houston and how is it possible he could have increased his spin rate like this or done this or done that and uh, like you said he might not always be the best messenger but he certainly was talking about it before anyone else was so that's the end of the 2018 so, season so that gets us to 2019 and like Bob said 2018 was just kind of flat and I think we were hopeful in that offseason that ownership was going to course correct well they changed course <laughs> <laughs> and it 
left most of the fans thinking, what the hell is happening here? It was clear that the wallet was just shut completely from the Dolans because the list of goodbyes is long. It was goodbye, Jan Gomes. Goodbye, Yandy Diaz. Goodbye, Yonder, after one year. Goodbye, Edwin. Goodbye, Andrew Miller. Goodbye, Michael Brantley. Cody Allen, Lonnie Chisenhall. We did get Carlos Santana back, which, you know, he's been one of this podcast's favorite player ever since he uh, arrived in Cleveland. But but we, we did give up a lot there. We got Daniel Johnson, Kevin Plawecki. You know you're getting in trouble when you when that's one of your noteworthy additions. <laughs> um, and then Nick Whitgren, who has turned out to be pretty useful, along with Jeffrey Rodriguez, and then Jake Bowers, which might someday turn out to be useful, and um, Jordan Luplo, which was a classic Cleveland maneuver that no one saw coming. <laughs> but then we completely fell all over ourselves and lost the division to the twins. <laughs> yeah, boy, and, and that narrative all just all winter long going into to last season was how winnable that division was and how like you know, like the, the the real story was what team wants to win this division and what team's going to to, you know, bring in that next big piece to to try and win it. And yeah, you're you're correct. It was definitely not Cleveland. Like the the tone in Cleveland was more like, are they going to trade Corey Kluber? And is this like a good time to trade Francisco Lindor? Which is insane to think about because of yeah. just that, that level of success that they had. <laughs> right. That's the thing. It's like you go back two years and they had won 102 games. And I think over those two years, they had slashed like 30 or $35 million in payroll from a 102-win team that was one out, or one run, we should say, from the um, World Series title. <laughs> Not just going to the World Series, <laughs> from the title. And, of course, there was a fair share of bad luck in 2019, right? Uh, Jose Ramirez lost his bat somewhere along the way. Uh, Corey Kluber broke his arm. Lindor missed time. Kipnis missed time. Carlos Carrasco got cancer. Um, along the way, all that uh, turbulence in the pitching staff meant that we found uh, Aaron Savale and Zach Plesac, and we saw Shane Bieber blossom into the All-Star Game MVP. Uh, we found Oscar Mercado. And then by the end of the season, strangely enough, we said goodbye to Trevor Bauer, and we ended up, and we ended up with Framil Reyes and Yasiel Puig, which I never saw coming, but I enjoyed. I, I really enjoyed Yasiel Puig. <laughs> I'm sad to see him and his antics go. Um, and then in 2020, heading into 2020, of course, before the coronavirus and and, and all those changes, the theme seemed to be can someone figure out how to drive this thing? Like, what direction are we going? We've got two years before Frankie Lindor leaves. You know, the Dolan's famous quote of enjoy him, which we don't need to get into. Um, they trade Corey Kluber for, uh, uh, what were those guys' names again? <laughs> it was Delino DeShields Jr. and um, Emmanuel 
Clays, of course, he's been suspended for steroids in the interim for 80 yeah, games. Trace, Trace so that was disappointing great. since since that since he was the power arm that supposedly drove the return. Um, on the positive side, Carlos Carrasco is making great uh, strides in recovering from leukemia. Of course, he returned uh, towards the end of 2019 and made relief appearances. Um, so we're, we're, you know, glad Cookie's feeling better. And then we, uh, with the, our signings or our additions that we made before the world turned upside down was we brought in, uh, Cesar Hernandez to replace Jason Kipnis on a one year, six and a half million dollar deal. And Domingo Santana. And we traded for Sandy Leone. That's it. We got two years left of Frankie Lindor. And we brought in Delino DeShields, a suspended reliever, Cesar Hernandez, Domingo Santana, and Sandy Leon. So and, let me ask, uh, let me ask uh, the, you guys this, because I'm, I'm kind of curious about this. with Because Francisco Lindor, since we started the podcast, which, again, this is kind of an interesting retrospective, because when we started in 2013, Lindor was, what, like 18 years old? like, But, like, the, the hot... Cleveland prospect like the next you know there are already discussions of this is going to be the next guy but when you look at Lindor and the direction of this franchise and and where it ended up at the end of 2019 how do you feel as people that that watch Cleveland and root and support that team like what what's your feeling about how where the ownership and, and where management has taken this franchise going into 2020 maybe I going into 2020 is a weird thing to say again, but just going into like the next few years uh, as these contracts expire, what do you guys feel about the direction they're going? That was a long, awkward pause there. Uh, I will say at least that I think that the organization has one of the sharpest, um, deliberate front office staff in the league as far as making moves. Um, their player development has come a long ways in producing pitchers for the Myers that can contribute in a level that keeps teams competitive in the games. We saw it obviously last year amongst injuries to the pitching staff and Savali and Plezak and Rodriguez kept a good job. Adam Pleco throwing some good innings as well. What disappoints me the most probably still is the lack of moves made during the offseason. But at the same time, they've always been able to swing a deal or two at the de- deadline to make the team better for the long stretch. But it's always that what if you would have done more in December and January beforehand anyway. That's my constant like back and forth argument I have. I mean, would you call this – so is – is Cleveland in a rebuilding mode? Is is that where they're at right now? Are they in a win-now mode? Are they in just kind of like a holding pattern and just seeing what happens in the Central? Like, what... I don't What do you expect from a team I, like this? I, I don't think you can say you're rebuilding when you've got, you know, Ramirez and Lindor on the left side of your infield. And Santana, I mean, he had a great year last year. And you've got a fabulous rotation when it's healthy. And like Bob said, 
what looked like fabulous depth in the minors, which kept you. The fact that they even kept themselves in the playoff hunt last year actually was quite an accomplishment, as pessimistic as I made it sound. Now, should they have ever been that back against the wall? That, to me, is the frustrating thing. Like, going into the 2019 season, if you want to trade, you know, Jan Gomes for Daniel Johnson and Yefi Rodriguez because you're confident in Roberto Perez as I'm fine with that. You want to trade Yandi? I kind of wrinkle my eyebrows about that, but if you'd gotten something better than Jake Bowers back, I'd be fine with that. Those other guys, you know, it was time to let Allen and Chisenhall and a lot of those, and Andrew Miller go, but they didn't do anything. <laughs> they got Kevin Ploiecki and Jordan Luplo. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, when you talk about trading for Yasiel Puig like they did, he seemed like the perfect kind of guy. Like, obviously, one of the things that Cleveland sorely lacks is outfield depth and any kind of real, any kind of real, they, they definitely don't have a star, but just a better than serviceable outfielder. And Puig is still being out on the free agent market right now, not having signed with anyone. Like, that seemed like a no-brainer to me to bring him back unless it's like he was just really that disruptive or something. But I just, yeah, I, I agree. Like, you know, the trade for Framil Reyes was, was a great Cleveland trade to trade Trevor Bauer. <laughs> when you have a glut of pitching talent and get back a young cost controlled power hitting outfielder, maybe, but at least DH great. But then, like you said, you know, Puig's probably going to sign for no more than $10 million, probably less because it's getting so late. Why are we not signing him? Why Why, why are we counting on Tyler Naquin and, and Bradley Zimmer and Delano DeShields Jr.? Like, that'd be fine if it was 2022 and Frankie Lindor was gone. But why yeah. we're doing that now makes no sense to me. So you wouldn't consider this? I gotta say one thing. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. Uh, the Jordan Luplo signing may have been last year. He was crucial for the tribe. Yeah, sneaky good platoon. Oh, he, he crushed. Oh, he, he was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he was amazing, but you can't tell me that when they brought him in, they're like, "Oh, this guy's gonna have like an OPS over over a thousand when we platoon him." <laughs> I mean, I'm you know again kudos to them that they found a person and they used they found a way to use his talents to the best of you know their ability. Okay, fine. Where's his platoon partner? Coming back from ACL surgery. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Jordan Luplo's like a fine fine supplementary type player. He's a fine player that you bring in where you say like, Hey, yeah, maybe we just need this guy to mash against lefties. And you know, you, you look at his season in the aggregate, you know, he had probably like what, 200 summit bats. He was like a two war player, I think last year. So, I mean, definitely yeah. a serviceable player, but like not a player that you bring in where you're expecting like, Hey, we're just coming off these world series runs and like these playoff runs and we need help in the outfield. 
And he's just not that kind of player that you can run out there every day and expect to perform. It's like if you go back to the 2016 team and you talk about them adding Brandon Geyer. You know, right. it's it's like if you had the other half of the platoon, right, and you're that contending team and you're like, oh, this is going to save so-and-so from being exposed by lefties, so we're going to go out and get this platoon partner and this is going to really complement what we already have. Okay. <laughs> but, like, there was no one in the outfield and they go out and get Luplo. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's... I mean, we can, as as people who primarily watch smaller market teams and how they navigate this uh, this business model that Major League Baseball has put in place for them, we can commiserate on a lot of things. And the the reason this podcast I find it so interesting is because when we're looking at this more in like a a reflective way of when we started in 2013, both Pittsburgh and Cleveland were in similar kinds of places, which is like young cost controlled talent, which had let them build a really solid core and every year bringing up players that were coming in that were building a a roster that was deeper and more talented. And now we're seeing we're on, I think I, I, again, I don't know. And that's why I was kind of deferring to you guys and curious about your opinions. I think for Pittsburgh specifically, they're on the other side of that bell curve. And I'm assuming that Cleveland is on the other side of that bell curve as well. Like if you were looking at the last, you know, seven years or so of, of baseball in Cleveland, would you say that the world series was like the peak of that, that core group of guys that they'd put together? Definitely. Yeah, now we're we're kind of like in that slow decline of, you know, you're saying like, well, we're not quite rebuilding yet, but we're definitely on the other side of that hurdle, and now we're trading away the Klubers, and now we're talking about trading away Lindor, who's like a a franchise cornerstone. Well, yeah, and of course, what's the difference? Is Frankie Lindor and Jose Ramirez are off of those pre-ARB deals, Right. Yep. Like Frankie Lindor is probably going to make what is like arb number is huge. Was it 18, 20, 20 million, 18 million? Yeah, I was going to say 17, 18 million or something. You know, that's but that's the difference, right? That's why the the core of the old team, the old team being twenty sixteen, was so much stronger, right? They could go out and Frankie Lindor's salary was probably. <laughs> Five hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> and they went out and spent that sixteen and a half million dollars on you know Jay Bruce and Andrew Miller and you know or Bruce wasn't there in twenty sixteen, was he, Bob? Twenty sixteen, no, I think he came in twenty seventeen. That was a seventeen edition, but like that's the guy that they're missing, really, right? right? Is yep. like that guy that you have to pay ten million dollars for, but man, he. Feels a big hole. <laughs> yeah. So we're on the other side of the bell curve. We're, do, do you think, is there any way that Cleveland can pull like a, a Milwaukee type rebuild and not totally tear this down? Do they have enough between the bats and, you know, like a surprisingly, despite trading 
Bauer and Kluber, a surprisingly still deep rotation headlined by like Bieber and, and Clevenger. And again, that kind of like young cost controlled talent, did they, are they going to be able to kind of skip that burn it down type rebuild? Or do you think that they're going to have to eventually like kind of face the music when Lindor goes, then that's going to be a domino that's going to lead to some other moves that they're going to have to make. What do you think, Bob? I think it depends upon the return they get for Lindor. Um, I think if they, I guess it's more of a uh, complicated question. Not only what would they do when they get rid of Lindor or Lindor leaves on his own, are they going to retain and keep Clevenger? Are they going to retain and keep Carrasco? If they keep those two, along with Bieber, the other guys that you have coming up in the minors and getting their wings, you know, more and more used to playing this level, they're deep enough rotation-wise to be competitive. Their bullpen should be solo still. My question would become what sort of offense remains behind. Most of the top-level talent that they have in the organization are at the lower levels of the minor leagues, minus a few guys, and that bridge is what worries me the most. Jason, thoughts? Do they need to do a full rebuild? I think you're going to see them really try to avoid the full rebuild. I think they... I think their new approach is is to stay away from that because I think, honestly, and I don't really have any evidence to back this up, but I think they believe that that is what has kind of emptied out their stadium. Mm. And so I think I think you'll see them really lean on the um, the rotation, like Bob was saying. You know, they have Carrasco signed for several years, so like. Uh, do they do they hang on to him? Do they pair him up as kind of the veteran with Clevenger and Bieber, and they use Rodriguez and Savale and Plesac and Plutko to fill that out. And uh, Tristan, or um, what's the one arm that's left? <laughs> I can't remember his name. Um, Mackenzie, right now. Oh, hurt. Yeah, Mackenzie. Yeah. Yep. You know, can he ever finally make the, the final jump uh, um, to actually help that rotation? Um, and then you're going to look at guys like Nolan Jones at third base and, you know, even uh, Tyler Freeman and Bobby Bradley. You ever gonna get, yeah. You ever going to get anything out of Bobby Bradley? Uh, can you get Daniel Johnson into that outfield? Um what can you get out of guys like, you know, Logan Allen and and uh, a player I really like is Brian Rocchio. Have you ever seen him play, Bob? Yes. I actually went down to the Scrappers last year to see uh, him play with uh, George Valera and, and yeah. Reynaldo Delgado and all three hit home runs that game, actually. Yeah, Valera is another good one. Yes. Um, so I think it's, it's, you know, like Andy, you compared it to when we started the podcast and the Indians and the pirates were in the same kind of place, right? Um, the Indians were able to turn some of those prospects into Frankie Lindor and Jose Ramirez and, and, you know, able to finally figure out Trevor Bauer and on down the line. And I think the question is, can they 
can they do that again? Obviously, they're not probably going to find Francisco Lindor again, but can they get services, serviceable players out of those guys that, you know, they can plug in at 500000 because that's how they're going to make a winning team. It's interesting, and, and the reason I want to talk about rebuilds is because as a professional podcaster, I'm great with transitions, and when we start talking about Pittsburgh – I think I think a lot of that time is going to be spent talking about what this roster is going to look like and how it's going to be uh, how it's going to be rebuilt. <laughs> Anything else Let's... that we want to touch on with Cleveland, though? Well, we can talk about Pittsburgh. The only thing left is the uh, it was reported in the Athletic that um, the Indians, as an organization, not necessarily driven by Major League Baseball, but as an organization, gave the players a quote mark in the sand. Uh, and said, we want you to train like you're going to return to spring training too on uh, June 10th and start the regular season July 1. So I, I guess that means that someone somewhere thinks there's going to be regular baseball and regular season baseball in July, but we'll see. Yeah, I think I would kind of side with Tony Clark on that and say we're all just – I, I I think it's good to have dates and I think it's good to set goals and stuff, but as far as setting anything definitively, I, I just I don't I have a real hard time seeing anything being set in stone at this point, but we'll see. That's a whole nother uh digression that we already kinda covered. Well, so it was set in sand, not stone. Yeah, set in sand. <laughs> that's right. That's I should pay attention to what they're setting the uh, dates in in that metaphor. That's a good point. So let's talk about baseball in Pittsburgh. You guys, you guys ready to be? If you're not depressed already, I was gonna say you're depressed right now. <laughs> this, if if you are sitting at home, I would go get your tumbler and I would put some ice in there and I would sit back and we're gonna go on a real sad, depressing ride. It's not, it's not been pretty the last few years. So since we last potted in 2017, uh, things have been on a similar trajectory in Pittsburgh. I would say probably a little more rapidly. So if Cleveland is on the other side of that bell curve with a parachute, Pittsburgh is on the other side of that bell curve with an anvil strapped to their ankles. <laughs> so when, when we last potted, Andrew McCutcheon was still a Pittsburgh pirate. There were still high hopes about uh, super prospects, Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows and, uh, there was still a core in Pittsburgh that that was not so far removed from being successful that, that you would have thought that things were going to go in the direction that they went as fast as they went. And basically, I, I don't want to rehash all this because it is very it is very psychologically draining to watch all of these things happen and and to watch everybody, every baseball writer on the Internet tell you something and then just watch your front office ignore it i don't know <laughs> maybe not have this access to the same data maybe not care i just i would like to know what the inner workings were like that led to these decisions but things got bad quick and neil huntington who i think did an amazing job given the resources that he had access to in pittsburgh and given what he had to start with when he came in the wheels fell off pretty quick from Pittsburgh being a team where, you know, there was a book written about 
how savvy their analytics department was to how suddenly they were just so far behind on everything that they couldn't get anything right. And just to, I guess, highlight a couple things that have occurred since 2017, uh, Neil Huntington traded Andrew McCutcheon, which did not go over really well in Pittsburgh uh, as far as just having a, a marquee player there that was no longer there. He traded Garrett Cole to Houston for a package that featured Joe Musgrove and Colin Moran as centerpieces. And then sealing his fate, I just, again, I would love to hear the conversations that took place or just to be able to dig around in his head and see what was going on. But uh, I, he, he put the final nail in his coffin by trading for Chris Archer and giving away Austin Meadows, Tyler Glasnow, and a player to be named later, who we very quickly learned was their first round draft pick, Shane Baz. It, it was not a pretty end to his tenure in Pittsburgh, so... The Neil Huntington era has since uh, ceased to exist. It is it is no more. And Ben Charrington is now leading the charge in Pittsburgh. And that's kind of where we came into this whole off season. Just not in a great place. It was it's and Pittsburgh fans are kind of used to this because we spent 20 years watching a, a team that was put out on the field that just pretty much every year you knew was just a, a basement finishing team so Pittsburgh fans I think are are kind of conditioned to expecting losing from their baseball team but man after you get a taste of success it's it's tough it's tough to watch what's going on right now so this offseason kicked off with Ben Sherrington coming in and and trading Starling Marte and I think kind of going back to like I think what Bob was touching on with Francisco Lindor getting dealt you're going to understand where teams are at with what return they get. So Pittsburgh traded Starling Marte in January for two 19-year-olds. So that tells you where Pittsburgh thinks they're at and where they're probably going to be going. Because when you trade for two 19-year-olds, a lot of the guys that are on your team now are not going to be there when those two 19-year-olds are on your team. It's going to be a while. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was kind of like the white flag to all Pittsburgh fans. We under, I I think, I think smart, intelligent baseball fans in Pittsburgh understood what that means. It's, it's, it's giving up. It's telling people, Hey, (laughs) we're, if you're going to be watching baseball in Pittsburgh, you're going to be in this thing for the long haul because Leo Ver, Piguero and Brennan Malone are, uh, not going to be up here for a while. They got a little bit of international spending money, which that is one area where traditionally Pittsburgh has done well with, you know, like Starling Marte is a great example of that, but the pirates are paying a one and a half million dollars on Marte's contract. And then he'll be a free agent after next season. So again, depending on like what happens with this season, and it, it's, it is just weird to talk about baseball in this almost morbid kind of context. But I mean, if you're talking about, Maybe they play 80 games or 60 games or 50 games, or maybe nobody plays any games this year. The trade doesn't look as bad if you're giving away, I guess, one year of Marte instead of two. But, man, that's just such a weird context to have to talk about baseball in. Well, and like you said there, Andy, you can kind of read the the tea leaves by the fact that they're paying that $1.5 million, right? That means that their return, if they paid nothing, was probably one of those kids. 
and they chipped in money to get another 19 year old. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, so so that them doubling down on four or five years from now. Yeah. And you know, all accounts that you read, uh, Pigero and Pigero, who's a, I think he's like a shortstop, a middle infield type player. um, And Malone, who's a pitcher, you know, everything you read about them are like live arm, quick feet, like it's it's all the stuff that you want to hear about i guess two teenagers entering your system but if you understand what's going to happen with this process you understand that there's a lot of things that need to go right and a lot of potential things that can go wrong between getting a 19 year old from a ball to the majors so i don't know again it'll, it'll be interesting to watch them develop i guess in the sense that like you're happy to have young talented players in your system but it's uh, it's kind of tough to swallow after a 20-year losing streak and then a few years of success having to go back into a, a rebuilding mode. It really got out. It really got out of hand quick. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean it was. <laughs> I don't know. There, there were some, and there were some like cool moments in there. Um, you know, like with all things baseball, there's there's just some timeless things that keeps me watching games in Pittsburgh, even though I just can't stand bob nutting and i'm not pleased with the way he runs the team but you know after they traded andrew mccutcheon uh, my wife actually got me tickets to his first game back at pnc park when he was visiting with the giants and so you know we both went down there we were sitting right behind home plate uh when kutch came up to bat and cervelli went out and stood on the mound. i think talion was throwing that day maybe um but at, whoever was on the mound he you know, like took off his mask and just went and stood and in, in between the pitcher and home plate and everybody gave him a standing ovation. And like, I'm getting misty eyed recording it. And, and, you know, it was a great moment. So it's not like, it's not like you don't have an opportunity to have great moments with pirates baseball. It's just, it's not fun to watch 162 games when you know that you're going to be finishing last. We, we spent two decades doing it as fans of Pittsburgh and, so to know that that's what you're kind of strapping in for and is going to be going on again, it's it's uh, it's not a it doesn't make the beginning of the season as exciting, that's for sure. But that's kind of that's what the that's what the tone of every off season is now is is going back to Bob Nutting again, and he I'm sure he doesn't want to be the headline, but that's what it's going to be as long as he continues to choose to run his franchise the way that he he does. And at Pirate Fest this offseason, according to Sports Illustrated writer Jared Martin, Bob Nutting said that they will make sure that they have an opportunity to really put their foot on the gas when they're able to do it by making these types of moves. And, you know, when when you're trading Starling Marte and you're trading Andrew McCutcheon and then you're trying to tell us like, oh, yeah, hey, no, when it's time to do it, we're going to do it. Again, if you've been watching baseball in Pittsburgh for any long period of time, you just know that that's lip service that's just an answer that you give to try and placate people his idea of of putting his foot on the gas in the past when we had hyper competitive teams was trading for marlin bird and john buck like and i should say the marlin bird trade actually did work out really well and he was an outstanding yeah that but that that one worked out but but point taken yeah when that's your all-in move when that's putting your foot on the gas like no nobody's buying that (laughs) he's saying that in a room full of people that probably aren't going to give him a lot of pushback he's not going out on the clemente bridge 
and announcing that from a soapbox because it would look like a scene from a like Dawn of the Dead. Just people would just <laughs> ravage him. Like I don't know. So uh, Andy, yeah, let me go ahead and add more to your misery here. Yes, please. If the pirates actually do make this move, which they're more than capable of, because here's a question for you. Do you realize, I'm sure you probably do as a Pirates fan, there's only one player right now on the roster who is guaranteed money, that non-ARB guys, for 2021. Just one player. All right, give me the qualifier again. Non-ARB guys? Non-ARB guys or pre-ARB guys. The current Pirates roster only has one guy guaranteed money for a 2021 season. Is it <laughs> is it Archer? Archer has a club option, so no. Oh, he's club he's a club option. Uh, yes. so, so it's not our guys. Um, guaranteed money. Um, it, well, Josh Bell will be he in Arb. He'll be in. I know he'll be in arbitration. Yeah, you said no that. arbitration guys. Because yeah. um, oh, Bob's boy. saying. You could cut any of these people and not cost yourself a dime. Yeah, right. But Correct. This one, but this one guy. Yes. Would it be? Would it be Musgrove? Nope. He also. I don't is... know. Who's Who's on contract? Gregory Polanco. Oh, Polanco. That's right, because oh, they signed him with that extension, huh? That's right. Yep. So yeah, after so after, <laughs> so after I mean, Polanco, you... you basically have a blank slate. Right. You're looking at like they're going to have. And I forget. I actually had it written down, and then I deleted it because it just made me sick to my stomach. But I think it's like, I don't know, like forty-three million dollars <laughs> or something like that. Like, it's com. It, it would be comical if it wasn't so sad. And again, you you accept it as a Pirates fan. That's just the way it is. So you either you either go to the stadium and you watch the games and you buy the merchandise and you choose to support it, or you don't. You know, I'm not boycotting games. Like I I'll, I'll watch games on TV, but I'm not taking a night out of my life to go to PNC park to watch what they're putting on the field. Generally speaking, like I love Kevin Newman and I would like for Gregory Polanco to be good, even though he's like the Jordan Luplo of our roster now that Jordan Luplo is not there, but like, it's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would cheer. I cheer for the players on the roster and I want them to do well, but you accept that, the restrictions that ownership is putting in place is going to hamstring anything that's going to take place in Pittsburgh before you can even start the season. And that's just what baseball looks like. So I don't know. It's a very like nihilistic point of view I have, I guess, but it's just, it's the only way that you can make it through a season without turning into like this angry drunken yinzer and like bashing your head off your TV screen every night. Yeah. I told you this, this podcast was going to get dark when we got to this. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's dark Whew. yeah so yeah that's just kind of that's just kind of what it is that's where we're at that's like the the mad descent into i feel like this is like this is like jacob's ladder just we're all on this crazy ride into hell at this point but what do you, you know what are you gonna do you you either support it like i said or you you don't so yeah cheers to that everybody a couple other things that i wanted to touch on before we talked about something hopefully marginally more uplifting. Jameis Italian's rehabbing from his Tommy John surgery. He's thrown a couple times a week now. I think he just posted a, a video on Twitter of him throwing for like the fourth time in a week. So sounds like things are going well with him. No major setbacks. And would you guys like to hear 
Pittsburgh's big splash this offseason? Oh, tell me. I knew <laughs> it. They were saving that money for something. <laughs> yeah, right. This is the big finish. This is what we're going out on Pirates baseball on. The Pirates this uh, offseason signed outfielder Gerard Dyson. <laughs> That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh. He's bad. I think he's like, what, 35, 36 years old? But he's still fast. Yeah, and so here's here's what I will say. And Team captain. In ben, in ben Charrington's defense, you know, you can only you can only play with whatever cards you're dealt. So <laughs> Dyson is an offensive black hole, but he is an elite defender. And if you look at his defensive metrics since he entered the majors in 2012, he is the sixth best outfielder by defensive runs saved and ultimate zone rating. Both of them have him ranked as the sixth best outfielder since 2012 overall, American League, National League, whatever. So that's that's good. He's fast. So the fact that he can't hit, and he does have some, some serviceable splits, I should say. But I, th- I think if you batted him eighth in the order where he's going to draw a few extra walks, He's going to get an opportunity to kind of use his legs a little more. I think he could be a a decent signing. Gerard Dyson, to me, is a player that you would sign if you were, like, one player short of having a good lineup. He's not a player that's going yeah. to matter at all in Pittsburgh. You know what they're going to you know. You know do with Gerard Dyson? Probably about him leadoff would be my guess. <laughs> well, yeah. At what, first, What yes. do you think? And then and then trade him but, like right around whenever the yep. All Star break is. <laughs> like they're gonna tra- they're gonna flip him to a contender for a high A reliever. That's what they're gonna right. do. Which is like it's a smart move. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I I, I actually but, I think I'm I I. But really you're right. Think... Until until that time, they're gonna bat him lead off. Yeah, but go ahead. I do think. I I think that they'll be smart enough to bat him down in the order to give him those extra opportunities to get on base. Cause his on base percentage is like 300. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't walk at all. And I think if you stick him at the top of that lineup and you expect like, Oh, this is going to go well, it's going to go bad very, very quickly. I think you can probably hide some of his offense, lacking offense in the eighth spot where he's getting on base, just those few extra times in front of the pitcher. Um, and they do have Kevin Newman hitting at the, the top of the, the order who's, you know, a great leadoff hitter. Um, so yeah, I, it, like I said, if you were a team that just, that needed like, uh, that needed an outfielder, you could do worse than Gerard Dyson because he will give you that elite defense out there and he is fast, but, uh, he's more of a player to me that seems like he's finishing off a roster than he is a centerpiece of an off season. So that's uh hey don't he's a player that by the way obviously too is amazing he even made the show he was drafted in the 50th round he's got one of those mike piazza type stories yes 2006 round 50 pick one by the royals wow he he does have like i said he has a a really solid career in Major League Baseball as being an elite defender. I mean, being the sixth best outfielder according to two different defensive metrics, I mean, you know, what we've learned, if it's anything about defensive metrics, 
over the last you know decade or so is you can find outliers and you can find a lot of variation season to season. So I think when you see that across you know defensive run saved and ultimate zone rating, you know two different measurement systems are showing the exact same thing with him, which is like he's an amazing defender. I, th- I think that's good. I think that's a positive thing. But yeah, um, it's, I mean none I'm of that over there unless. Yeah, well, yeah, right, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a smart move. I do think that, but it's not going to be a move of any consequence. And I guess that's kind of like the the underlying message I would say of that is, like, it's a great move, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know. So do you want to go talk about something that's marginally less depressing than baseball in Pittsburgh? Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't know... If we're talking about what's next on the agenda, I'm not sure I think it is less depressing, but let's press <laughs> ahead. Depending on how it plays out, I guess it might be much, much more depressing or a welcome surprise. But let's let's move on to talk about one of our uh, one of our favorite segments, which is our Seawolf shout-out. So this week, we have, according to a Washington Post report, MLB and Minor League Baseball are moving closer to an agreement to reduce the number of affiliated teams. That in and of itself is... I don't think good. And I think we can probably stop here for a few minutes and have a discussion. And I think based on what I know of us having done a podcast for years together and going to baseball games together and talking about baseball nonstop, I think we're all going to be on the same page on this, but I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts. I think that even though it probably makes sense logistically for teams to have fewer affiliates, and I think even though it definitely makes good business sense, which is the only driving force behind this, I think. I think that cutting 40 affiliated teams from minor league baseball is just baseball continuing to do a terrible job of advertising itself and selling itself to the people that it needs to consume its product. That's just my opinion. But Jason, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are about Major League Baseball wanting to reduce the number of affiliates in minor league baseball. I I hate it. I <laughs> um, I mean, for one, you know, you have to realize like reducing forty affiliates that's like a thousand players. Um, um, and along with this, right, they're reaching agreements to reduce the the number of rounds in the draft and. You know, whether it's whatever the rationale is, I think it's a horrible idea. I actually went back and um, found a text that I sent to you guys back in December when this news broke. And uh, I described it this way. The major league games are too expensive to go to and they black them out within their own market. Then they take away our they want to take away our local minor league team. So how exactly am I supposed to interact with the game? And to me, that really sums it up. You know, like uh, my my son, you know, like I said, he, he's getting to the point where he's becoming interested in baseball. I actually took him to a Seawolves game last year. It was the first baseball game he ever went to. And one of the things he talks about all the time is how much fun he had and when we're going to go back. And... I just think it's a horrible, horrible thing for the game. Um, I'm just going to stop there because that's pretty much all I have to say about it. Bob, thoughts? 
I totally agree with Jason. Uh, all that stuff. I also, you know, having traveled different parts of the country and gone to some of the more smaller New York Penn League games, like Auburn, New York, and Batavia, and and Jamestown used to have a team, the Jammers. Where actually I saw Nick Whitgren pitch that day. Um, they may not draw a big crowd, but at the same time, they're still part of the community. And people that go there as a game, they're been going to those games for decades. I mean, that's what builds up the love for the game, and they can pass down to their sons and daughters and grandkids, and I think it's just sad to see that lost. I agree with that 100%, and I don't know. I I feel like if you're working in baseball, Major League Baseball PR, that you have to be at least telling people in that front office that you're turning people away from this game willfully and you might be making a lot of money right now but you're going to start losing money in the long run when you start turning people off from baseball like that and you know whether it's going to like lake county or whether it's going to uh you know mahoning valley or like you said some of those other smaller stadiums like jamestown um those are ways for baseball to get people to follow teams, to spend money, to tune in and watch games. And I think there's just so much, there's so much for people to consume out there now that when you don't give them a reason to consume what you are presenting to them and you you start giving them reasons to actively not consume it, people will start to tune out what you're offering and you're making it easier for people to do that. So I, I, I 100% knew that you guys were both going to have that same mentality as me, but I don't know. The, the Minor League Baseball, I think, is some of the best of what Major League Baseball actually has as a product, and for them to start taking it away, uh, it, it really is. I, I think it's a shame. I, I, I think it's very, very bad for what they're trying to do. Now, I will say, to be fair, if you read this Washington Post article again, uh, it was reported in the article that most full season teams will continue in their same level of play and with long-term affiliations with their current MLB partners. It stated a few minor league teams will be required to move to different levels of play to accommodate the geographical needs of some MLB clubs and to recognize the most advanced players should be playing in high quality facilities. To me, again, this is just like a great business kind of cover your butt statement because the first word yeah. that you read in that sentence, the first thing you read is most full season teams. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, so you know that there's going to be some communities out here that that are not going to have a team when this is all said and done. And I've I've read things where baseball has said that they want to do some kind of like dreamer league where it's you know the players that didn't get drafted might have a place to go and play. And, you know, some of those players will end up on major league rosters, but it's, it's just, it's, it's really not going to be the same, whatever they do to that. And I would say just as someone who is very passionate about the sea wolves, who spends a lot of time at that stadium. And, you know, we've interviewed Greg Coleman, the general manager and talked to players and we recognize how big of a part of our community, the sea wolves are. I would be I would be crushed if there was not minor league baseball in, in Erie. Like that would be a real, real tough thing for me to stomach if, if major league baseball removed that. 
Now, I, I will say the only thing that I, I think is a positive is that it sounds like they're, from that quote again, they're trying to say that they're going to keep baseball in most of the cities. But when you're looking at cutting 40 teams, I mean, 40 teams is 40 teams at the end of it. Like, are they saying, are they saying that, you know, the full season teams that are being cut are like the, the rookie ball teams and like the A ball teams? Because we know when we saw that list that was released last November, which kind of started a whole, I guess, like stirring a hornet's nest of, of minor league baseball. But that letter stated that the Seawolves were one of the teams that was going to be cut. And boy, was that a real gut punch. So I don't know if, if anyone has seen anything different or if anyone's read anything different, but, you know, knowing that Erie was on that list last November and then knowing that they're still talking about cutting some minor league teams, it's it's got me a little nervous. Yeah, I haven't seen anything new on that, but I, I felt the same about it, you know. Um, luckily, uh, the city of Erie and the state of Pennsylvania have been, you know, working to previously before all this to invest a lot of money into that stadium. So, you know, I hope that um, they're essentially appealing their inclusion on that list and kind of a lot of the teams on that list, it was cited that they didn't have adequate uh, facilities. And, you know, whether that was true or not, it's certainly not going to be true after the uh, renovations that are planned to UPMC Park. And hopefully there's still baseball in Erie because uh, I think we'll all feel a gut punch if there's not. I agree. So can we talk about something a little more positive with the Seawolves? Because this is really what I want to end the podcast on after some, after talking about some depressing size of the bell curve and minor league baseball possibly not existing. So assuming that there's still minor league baseball in Erie in 2021 and the world hasn't ended yet, the Seawolves announced on Twitter a few weeks ago that at some point next season for one of the games, they're going to be changing their name from the Erie Seawolves to the Erie Wonders. Which, if you are not familiar with uh, pop culture or the Erie area in general, uh, the Wonders are the fictional band from the Tom Hanks-helmed movie, That Thing You Do. And they release like a, a you know, like a logo for what their jerseys are going to look like. And they have the Wonders-style text on the front. And, you know, they're like the sleeve jerseys, like the white uniform with the green sleeves. And they they look pretty sick, like... If they come out with t-shirts or hats or anything for that that are available, like, people are going to be buying them up. But, like, the Wonders, this fictional band, are, like, Erie's second sons. They're, like, it's it's when people talk about, like, cinema and Erie, it's what people talk about because it played such an integral role in that movie. Um, and so I don't know if you guys had seen that, if if that movie resonates with you guys or, or you know, whether you connect with that at all. But for me, at least, growing up, like, that thing you do is always a, a big viewing uh choice in our house as far as movies go bob have you seen the movie a long long time ago but i'm a big tom hanks fan though so i'm down yeah i haven't seen it in a while but i certainly uh you know know the connection and actually my wife and i strangely enough we're we're kind of explaining the connection to our son the other day um so yeah, I mean that'd be that that'd be cool, and like you said, Erie would certainly turn out for that, um, especially any Erie Wonders gear that's out 
up there. I mean, there'd be a lot of people buying that up. <laughs> yeah. And so it was kind of cool if you if you started following on Twitter when the Seawolves were doing that. Um, this was right around the whole like beginning of this you know kind of COVID crisis, and um, Adam Schlesinger, he was the lead singer of Fountains of Wayne. He actually wrote the song for that thing you do. Um, he had actually died from complications from contracting the coronavirus, and so all the actors who were in the fictional band The Wonders put together a, a viewing party um, to, to help support COVID relief for musicians and artists. And um, so people were kind of tweeting at them about that. And then when the Seawolves announced that Wonders Night, they started tagging the actors in it. And so the actors, uh, I've, I've seen both uh, Tom Everett Scott, who played Shades in the movie, and then Jonathan Skaich, who played uh, Jimmy, They've both like they're very active on Twitter and they've both tweeted that they would be pretty excited to have an opportunity to come to UPMC Park and like throw out a first pitch. And so I think that would be like a kind of cool thing, like you said, for the community to rally around. I think that that game would sell out in a heartbeat in Erie if, you know, the the members of the Wonders were getting together to go, you know, like play a song or throw out a pitch or something. So I think it would be a great thing for the community if we can get things back on track in 2021 to, to have a wonders night like that. So yeah, that's kind of cool. Anything else you want oh, to touch I, on with baseball? Oh, I saw you egging it on, on Twitter. That's oh, for yeah. sure. But that's no, what you, was, that's what you do best. I was so. weaseling weas- <laughs> my way in those sub tweets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do, anything else that we've missed with minor league baseball in general, the sea wolves, anything else that we didn't touch on that we want to before we wrap this thing up? I don't think so. I, I think I think we've bridged the three years appropriately. <laughs> what a what a fantastic time to decide to get back in this podcasting game. I tell you guys. Yeah, that uh, I think that's going to kind of wrap us up for this. I feel like on a scale of one to five, we're not at we're not at a peak yet. We're kind of like the players. We're ramping back up into this thing, but I feel like this was a. This was a presentable spring training performance by by all three of us. What do you guys think? I think so. I think, I think you know, I'm, I'm just getting loose over here. <laughs> I don't want to pull anything. I'm going to have to go do some stretching, stay hydrated. But yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about our performance today. You can tell that we've done this before. It, it's not like our first episode. Have you ever gone back and listened to our first episode? Oh, no, not in a long time. It's yeah. probably pretty bad. It's it's tough. It's tough to get through. I feel like this is you you can listen to this and it's not it's not like a dragging a cheese grater across your face or anything. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I was pretty prepared for this. I actually like went into the Google Doc and put stuff in there. Yeah. That was one of my favorite things too was just talking about how technology's changed in the last 3 years. We're like, oh, hey, we can share yeah. docs with each other. We don't have to email them back and forth. <laughs> but I don't think by the end of it, my uh, free time was so non-existent that when I got on, I, I had not prepared at all. <laughs> You're, yeah. You're just I was coming just, in. I was just it. winging it. I listened to that last one. And it was like you guys were talking, and I was just like straight man in it the whole time. Just along for the ride. Yeah. 
Well, hey, I'm glad you were an active participant in this, Jason. Uh, what can I say? My heart is full. All right, well, let's wrap this thing up. We've, we've been dragging this thing on long enough. Uh, we'd like to thank our listeners and ask if you're listening to us on iTunes that you give us a rate and review. Those drive up our, uh, our listeners. And we're going to be podcasting. I'm not sure what podcasting is going to look like in 2020. Podcasting in the age of COVID is uh, an interesting thing, but we'll be presenting some more podcasts soon. So keep your ears to the ground. We'll, uh, we'll be getting back on social media letting people know when they're rolling out. So you can follow us on Twitter at um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash TSM Baseball. So for Andy Burdick, oh boy, no. For Jason Ruggiero and Bob Pinkbein, this is Andy <laughs> Burdick. <laughs> and we will look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, it's my first day potting. I'm a little nervous. Hey, Dan in Buffalo, Dave in Carlisle, go back. <laughs> <laughs> We got, we got our two listeners that we got to throw in there. <laughs> <laughs>